Hello and welcome to the third episode of Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. I'm delighted to tell you that my guest this week is Robert Webb of Peep Show and Michelin Webb fame, but more pertinently for today's purposes, the author of How Not to Be a Boy, which is a curious combination of sort of autobiography and examination of, of how hard it is to be to be male. It's, it's also quite a lot about death, but don't let that put you off. It's, it's going to be a fascinating <laughs> encounter. Robert, hello. Hello. Thank you. This is odd, isn't it? Because you've written a book that essentially sort of tear your ribcage asunder and, and display <laughs> all of your innermost secrets. So yes. you could answer every question I ask by saying, well, just read the book. Yeah, because I'm a pervert. I've written the whole thing down. So, you know, there's nothing in between the lines. It's all in the lines. But it I, is it is all there, isn't it? All of you, or most yeah, of you. Yeah, it's fairly... Yeah, There's. I thought I had a good story to tell, a sort of mixture of the unusual and very typical. So all the stuff that all the teenage angst about, you know, why won't these girls fancy me? Why do they lack the basic imagination to want to get off with me? Um, that's fairly, you know, normal. Uh, there again, you know, what I do for a living is a bit unusual. It's not normal to sit here in this lightless booth being interviewed by a person. Although it's what you always wanted. It not specifically of this episode <laughs> of that. But, but, but. How, how, how do you know? This is it. Hang on. Listen, 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 stop. I, that's it. I've just peaked. I've just but, but peaked. But you did. Your dreams are coming true, aren't they? Uh, yes, the professional ones, definitely. No, I, uh, I decided what I wanted to do when I was about 13, which is freakishly early, I think. and Because um, I'd always... You know, I was very quiet as a child and quite shy. In fact, people kept telling me I was shy, and so I thought, well, I must be because people keep saying I am. But I, I was always a, I could do impressions of teachers. I was making up funny songs. I knew how to sort of amuse my friends, and I avoided getting bullied by. You know, I'd always identified the biggest lad who wasn't himself a bully, and make him laugh. And he was, you know, then he been my sort of patron. And then when I was thirteen, I realised I could do that on a stage in front of people I hadn't met so that was the sort of breakthrough really and then um yeah and then i sort of worked out this weird plan about what i was how i was going to michael heseltine's political it was plan. it was it was it's, it's not an attractive trait is it the, the whole, the <laughs> whole thing on the back of a postcard but it, it wasn't it wasn't a postcard it but i did have a diary <laughs> and there is an entry on my 18th birthday where i say you know, okay, right, so Cambridge Footlights, meet someone funny to work with, uh, Edinburgh Fringe, Radio 4, BBC Two, Channel 4, Hollywood. Now, Hollywood, uh, and, it, and it ends, that entry ends with, I'm going to be bigger than John Cleese. I think Mr. Cleese is safe from my, now, from my bigness. Hesselside yeah. never made Downing Street either, so the parallels, <laughs> parallels resonate. Um, it is an autobiography that you've written, and you started it presumably sh shortly after turning 40. Um, or thereabouts. Somewhere around there, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's not quite Kenneth Branagh or David Beckham territory when they were writing <laughs> autobiographies before they were barely out of their teens. But there's a very real sense that you have not completed a journey, but you, you, you've got a lot behind you. Got a lot done. Yeah. Well, it's... I mean, Emotionally and... What it, what it isn't is a, you know, it's not a straightforward celeb autobiography, you know, how I got to be so super duper because I'm, I'm not really famous enough to write a book that dull. Um, <laughs> so it sort of had to do something. You know, on the other hand, neither is it this cutting edge, you know, social science book about gender and masculinity with a 30-page bibliography. It's not that either, but it's a sort of memoir heavily based on my teenage and childhood years sort of with its thinking hat on with a with a preoccupation with masculinity and how boys are supposed to be boys and because uh, I've I've just always been 
interested in that partly because I found it quite a tight fit when I was when I was a kid I never had a problem with my sex assignment I didn't want to be a girl but I did find all the rules about what you're supposed to do as a boy you're meant to love football and there's nothing there's no better part of the week than games or PE and swimming and climbing trees and you're boisterous and you're cajoling and you're cheeky and I couldn't do any of that I was almost completely mute you know there was a there was always a time at the end of you know friends birthday parties where the mum will be clearing away what's left of the angel delight and she'd say plaintively i wish they were all like you robert and i'd be i'd be almost indignant if i didn't get this compliment um but i was also uneasy because i knew that i was supposed to be noisy and your dad was uh, the polar opposite of all of that i mean the book in many ways is as much about him as it is about you indeed yeah i mean I, i say later on in the book you know if you want a man of a certain age to go a bit quiet and stare into the middle distance for five seconds ask him about his relationship with his father and then expect the word complicated to feature quite heavily in the next sentence it was complicated because he was he didn't really know what to do with small children you know he drank a fair bit he was on a quite a short fuse he punished his sons physically there again you know to contextualize that we're talking about the 70s when you know there was still corporal punishment in primary schools you could work as a teacher and still come at a nine-year-old with a stick Mm. and that was fine um but anyway my mom had had enough of it by the time i was five and that's when she divorced him The, the way the way you write about your mother securing your stepfather is uh it's a thing of beauty isn't it as if she really basically had a lasso yeah no she was um, uh, she wasn't wearing her glasses because she was on the pool uh, yeah, she at the golf to, club where your grandparents that's were. right yeah my grandparents worked in the kitchen of the golf club and my mum worked in the bar there sometimes but there was some sort of ball or Christmas do and that's where she uh, yes yeah, she I, I say in the book that my stepdad was called Derek that she um it wasn't so much a courtship as an Anschluss. Uh, she she marched peacefully into his heart and planted a flag. And she got mostly what she wanted. Kind of, yeah, yeah. She, in I mean, terms she, of security ex- for you and your brother. She explicitly said she was looking for a little bit of security for herself and her and her three boys. Um, she didn't really have that much many many other options, really. Yeah, I mean, people will be surprised to learn that you. You're not remotely posh. No, I mean they would be forgiven for. I mean, it's you know it's my own bloody fault. I mean I've been doing a, a reasonably good impression of a middle class person since I was I don't know 15, 16. Yeah. So listeners might be a bit surprised to hear. You know I grew up in this bungalow and we read the Daily Mirror and we watched Blind Date and we drove secondhand cars and we went on package holidays to the second tackiest bit of Spain <laughs> and you know everyone had a job no one had a career no one had been to university uh, the odd raised voice about whether we could turn on the heating that kind of thing it was a fairly standard northern English working class uh, and tip you know that's revealing class not class I, said, oh, yes. I even changed my accent um, I don't know why it's a character flaw there's something weird going well, there, you consciously changed your accent when I you really were 15. Did. Yeah, yeah. Why is between, that a character flaw? Between 15 and 18. I don't know. It makes me feel like a, a sellout in some ways. It makes me feel like I was. I'm not ashamed of where I come from, but I, I really genuinely didn't like the sound of my own voice. And I kind of. It was partly to do with who I was watching on. TV, this will sound very silly, but you know, when Rick Mayle in The Young Ones says, Vivian, you bastard, mm. that's a very different sound to Vivian, you bastard. Yes, yeah, completely. Because to different. me, bastard, you know, it, it just sounds so much more aggressive and it reminds me of dad, who of whom I was terrified. What accent do your brothers have? 
they've kept their Lincoln, native Lincolnshire, which is so, quite a broad well, accent. Well, you, I suppose you, you I suppose you, you, you talk, I can't even fucking do it. And, you know, I always slip into Yorkshire, which is nothing like. I suppose you, you're talking like this. You're saying, "All right, James, you're right, mate. What are you doing? What are you up to, me duck?" It's, it's, it's so, so it was. It was a. It was a big effort then. I mean, it, well, I'm yeah, always intrigued by posh people doing the same thing. People yeah, who, yeah. I, I, people who, I, who David mock, Mellor. Who I probably shouldn't him. mention names. Oh, right, no, yeah, who go yeah. the other way because it was at a provincial grammar school. So he at some point clearly decided to start talking like the Duke of Windsor <laughs> because that would be for him advancement that's yeah. definitely not why you tried to talk a little bit posher. no it was it was I don't know what it was really it was partly it was about that time 15 or 16 that I realised that I remember having a conversation with uh, in the book I call her Tiffany my, yes. my friend Tiffany Rampling and she was just a female friend who uh, became a very good friend after it was made clear that I, she was never going to go out with me um, and uh, she, I was talking to her about it was the very beginning of sixth form and she, I was talking to her about um, you know what I wanted to do I, I thought I might want to be do I want to be an actor or a writer who I don't know what you do do you go to drama school where's it there's no internet obviously so how do you apply to drama school you know it's not it's not immediately clear mm. and she said yeah but after university though Rob I mean after you've been to university obviously and I thought and that was literally the first time someone had said to me obviously you're going to university you're the sort of person who goes to you it just hadn't been obvious at all it was um, I mean it was a you know, not even was, teachers it was a grammar school right of, of I have torturously conflicted feelings about that issue if we want to bore everyone about it because I'm very grateful to that school but on the other hand anyway let's not go there but it so it let's go there a bit on the okay. other hand it's a system that entrenches intellectual privilege but if you hadn't gone to a school like that it's unlikely you could have gone to Cambridge so you have in the back of your mind the you that didn't go to Absolutely. Queen Elizabeth Grammar my, School my brothers for example yeah um, so who both went to the secondary modern they left at 16 they got jobs but um, but if you put all three of us in a line aged 11 there is no massive difference in intellectual ability or academic attitude it was just this you know this random version of an IQ test that had yeah. been discredited for 20 years even then in 1980 whenever it was I took it 83 um, and you know there are there are consequences and um, you know as I say I'm I will always be grateful to that school but um, but it, my feeling is at the moment that it, it's it is mainly that system is mainly designed for middle-class fathers like me rather than working-class boys like like what I like what I was, like what I was. Um, and you know I did you know the, the the defenders of that system they always talk about the anecdotes rather than the data and I am the anecdote yeah. uh, and I can tell you that it, it it's it doesn't do what it's supposed to do you know there were all of the other you're the cognitive dissonance because it did for you yeah so that's the anecdote versus exactly the data. So, hence the torturous confliction <laughs> you gone because you know you don't want to say you're pulling up the rope bridge after you've climbed up but no, on, on the other not. hand it, it just doesn't do what it's supposed to do for most for most people did your brothers react when you got in uh, my oldest brother Mark was uh, proud and pleased. Uh, the younger of my two older brothers, Andrew, who's only uh, a year and a bit younger than right. Mark, they're five to six years older than me, um, took it as a personal affront um, <laughs> because he was always the slightly uh, more uh, rebellious one, let's say. And uh, there was, I, I mentioned in the book uh, at one point, you know, uh, I just got into the grammar school and um, I was buttering a slice of bread with butter straight from the fridge <laughs> and I made a massive pig's ear of it. And, ripped the butter to shreds and, and Andrew said oh grammar school education you can't even butter a slice of bread and I thought oh fucking hell this is going to run and run isn't it and it did you know yeah, of course clever boys don't have common sense are you close 
ish. Yeah. yeah, we talk, we text <laughs> more than we talk. I see Mark a bit more often because Mark's more willing to come down to London. Uh, but uh, but since you know our our mum and stepdad and dad and all of our grandparents are gone now, so there's, it's really only them and my sister Annabeth who lives in Preston. So there's less of a, and I've got two kids and it's just a bit more of a schlep now sure. to, to go to to get there. I mean, it is fairly isolated you know from where i grew up it takes an hour to get to the the nearest dual carriageway which is the a1 otherwise known as the lincolnshire bypass um and it's a weird road it, it, it is it's a weird it's a it's a mixed bag <laughs> yeah um, i i asked because i wondered how they felt about it how they, they did you show it to them before you published yes it? i did um every significant living person in the book so my wife abby obviously and my two brothers my sister and a couple of close friends uh will who turns up mm. in it um they all saw an early draft and they all came back with a double thumbs up broadly mark thought i was a bit hard on dad i think probably because he was that little bit old well quite a lot older so the 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 scary aspect of dad was easier to for him to predict I mean that was the thing it wasn't it wasn't being slapped it was not knowing the rules so I was only five and yeah. for me it just you know it would come out of nowhere and I wouldn't understand so he'd, what, pro he'd processed it and you whereas Mark, whereas Mark could, could see it coming could, could, could get it right he knew how to get it right he knew what he knew when he'd overstepped the mark whereas I sort of just didn't so I found Adam you know it's, it's, it's true in my memory that I found Dad a much more terrifying figure than, than Mark or Andrew did where did the book come from was it bubbling away for ages because you mentioned gender and masculinity and autobiography I, yeah. I, I thought it perhaps was a book about death in some way it is pretty deathy yeah but also about how it changes you and how it makes you look at yourself differently. Yeah. So did it? I mean, did you it, have a desire to write it before you had that? You know what? Catalogue of loss. I really ought to have a an answer worked out to this by now, but it, it is slightly mysterious to me um, whether the the stuff about my feelings about masculinity, it, whether that came before mm. the desire to to write a memoir. But, but I think I think they, you know, the challenge of the book was to put, it's sort of two books in one, was to put those two elements yes. at the service of each other. Which you and, do brilliantly. Oh, you never, you, there's no seams in it. Oh, you never you sort of think, oh, now we get a flashback and now we get some Thank you very much. I mean, cheers. I mean, you know, I got halfway through the first draft and I thought, actually, this is all working quite yeah. well. And, the, you know, this, and is a, very funny. this is a good idea for a book and all I have to do now is not screw it up. And yeah, and, and it, it just became very clear that 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 the that the the events in my life that really stuck out, I could, I really could see them all through the prism, if you like, of gender and the mistakes I was making and the things that happened to me and how they relate to expectations on boys and men. And when it comes to bereavement, you know, it uh, that sort of made sense too because. You know, you, you. I think boys more than girls are told not to express negative emotions. You know, man up, be a man, act like a man, all that stuff. Um, it feels like you're being told, you know, there is a benign meaning for that. You could just be saying, do the thing that needs doing, even though you don't want to do it. You know, man up, do your homework. Bit aggressive, but, you know, there's that. But I think the more sinister meaning is, uh, you know, that, that negative emotion that you're feeling grief or pain or anxiety or embarrassment or shame or fear 
Um, that is not an acceptable emotion for a boy because it won't be an acceptable emotion for a man. So don't express it. And the more you hear don't express it, it starts to sound uncannily like don't feel it, don't feel those feelings. And it, it sort of has to come out somewhere. And I think quite often it comes out as anger. And I still do it. I speak for myself. I've been trying to ring some bells. But I still get angry when, when what I'm actually feeling is fear or I get angry when I'm feeling shame or I get angry when I'm in grief and it just doesn't work and it doesn't prepare you for adversity so when mum died when I was 17 I was lucky enough to have these friends and family saying and if you need to talk just talk I'm here I mean mm -hmm. if you want to talk just talk and if you don't want to talk maybe that's something we can talk about but do talk I'm here and I thought well I was grateful but on the other hand I was thinking all right this is novel now you want me to talk okay what's this talking business how do you talk how does talking change anything what and um so i think it leaves you unprepared for tough times i think it also leaves you unprepared for love which is you know which i sort of get to in the in the last chapter of the book and um you know the way i freaked out when i became a father for the first time uh and i think that has a lot to do with my upbringing um and that, that that level of emotional repression because you felt well I was going to say let down but repressed is fairer you, you, yeah you're I mean, an environment I, of repression and what you were frightened that when your first daughter was born that history might you, repeat itself yeah frightened of the responsibility and what do I remember about houses with small children in and you know there are violence lots of, mostly well fear and violence yeah, yeah certainly and and um, you know I'd rather chew my own arms off than hurt the girls but there were other aspects of dad's behaviour that did sort of creep in there you know there are lots of ways of being a dad but instead like of instead of making up my own way the, the original model reasserted itself I started drinking a lot more than I had done I started saying yes to literally every job coming which I absolutely didn't need to I was very fortunate with my career at that point peep show was going sketch show was going I could have done those two shows and that's better than you know that was anything everything I ever wanted instead I said I had this breadwinning panic right a man works a man leaves the house a man leaves the woman to do everything and he, he earns the money he provides and that was the whole breaking bad kind of thing going on in my head and you know that explains the existence of um, movie mistakes or at least that's my excuse and uh, <laughs> Robert's Web the TV show about the internet <laughs> which would have been a bad idea even if I'd had my own way and called it Worldwide Robert success is the Worldwide Robert <laughs> <laughs> success is the weirdest thing like that though because you never would have got any of that off the ground if you hadn't already done Peep Show and, yeah. and the sketch show and yet you're right it's, it's, it's learning to say no to stuff career wise that's yeah. more important than, oh, no, than getting the offers in the first place saying no is my favourite hobby now is it so, so you come so, over that so, room you're also so, married to a woman from, from, from the brief bits that we learn about her who would I mean just laugh in the face of the of the dichotomy you just described wouldn't she the idea that you should be going out and breadwinning and oh she would also notice that it's very convenient isn't it because you know much as I love my children very small children babies and small infants you know looking after them is thankless relentless and quite boring and so you know it's quite convenient that we have this role where we get the hell out of that place and leave someone else to do while that. patting ourselves on the back for yeah, being breadwinners yeah, so exactly. you're having your cake and exactly. eating for it doing the prestigious well-paid yes. job yes uh, that everybody and it's their job to be nice to you if you're you know if you're in this ridiculous you know if you I mean show business is a, a precarious and of course weird profession if either of my girls said they wanted to be actors or singers my heart would sink because you know it, it doesn't go right for most people um, but if you if you do get lucky then it's then it's a great job um, 
So, yeah, there was that. Do, 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 do you think it might be slight? I mean, there's two ways I can ask this question. I could either say, is it, is it, is it uh, uh, unseemly to be so interested in yourself? But that will sound very unfair. No, that's fair enough. Or, um, or I could just say, do you think you're too hard on yourself? Um, well, I hope that the, the governing tone of the book, particularly when I'm talking about my teenage self, is self-critical rather than, or self-mocking rather than self-flagellating. I mean, it, there's nothing yeah. more boring than a writer who clearly, you know, won't stop protesting how much he hates himself. But um, I think I'm sort of, I have a sort of amused impatience with, with my teenage self. Yes. And I quote bits of the diary and I get to, I get to, you know, almost cr criticize the diary uh in real time, does that happen in books? In real time, but yes, live criticism, comment on the diary. Red button. Um, but it's interesting what you said about being interested in yourself. I, I'm not really writing the book because I think I'm special. I'm writing it because I think I'm typical. Yes. And it's an act of communication. I hope that it's a very generous and outward-facing book. And particularly when it comes to bereavement, um, I'm not saying, oh, poor old me. It really is there to reach out to other people who've lost people, which of course is all of us. Well, it, yes, eventually it's all of us. Mm. But it, it, as an adult, and I suppose losing a grandparent, one takes him on stride as a younger child yeah, a little it, bit. Yeah, but it's yeah. But I, it's I when guess. you lose a pair. I mean, you lost a mum at seventeen. Yeah. That that is not an experience that most people, thankfully, yes, will go through. And and I think you probably could have written the book if your mum was still alive, but not if your dad was. That's fair enough. Yeah, I think I think my mum would be would have reservations as well. I mean, sure. it wasn't it wasn't like I was drumming my fingers waiting for my father to <laughs> to pass no. on. I thought you said you had emphysema. Come on, I've got a I've got a deadline here. Um, no, it, I, I couldn't have I couldn't have done it while he was around. Not just because of sheer cowardice, but also it just would have been cruel. It would have been mean. You know, I mean, in the later chapters of the book, I hope I redeem him to some extent. And there was a lot to like about him, a lot to admire about him. And as we both got older and mellower in a way um, it became uh, you know we never quite saw eye to eye but it was something close to a friendship I certainly liked him you know it's a it's a mortal lock that you love your parents whether you whether they're great people yes. or not but but to like them is is uh, is a separate thing and I think most people do like their parents but it, that wasn't guaranteed with me and Paul um, but I did I did like him and he was he was very popular he was and he was kind in many ways. And, there, you know, I wrote and delivered his eulogy when he died in 2013. And, you know, I say in the book, I remembered some of his unremembered acts of kindness. Um, and, you know, he, he was wildly charismatic as well. You, you would, you know, you'd watch him walk into a pub and the whole room would subtly adjust itself in his direction and settle itself in for a Are treat. Are you like that? No. Not even not a really, bit. Not really. Because people who only know you from the telly might presume that you are. No, I'm, I give myself permission not to be funny uh, about 23 and a half hours a day. <laughs> he, was he was proper proud of you, though, which you he seem was, a little yeah. bit surprised by. Um, was particularly I surprised? that scene, you begin the book practically with a, with a comic relief scene, don't you, when you did the flash dance when I did the, yeah, let's which was jump. campness personified. And, and, and Dad is in the book very much the whatever the antithesis of campness is. So yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It's quite touching when he tells you how proud he is. It was. I was worried. It wasn't until I saw myself on a monitor they were repeating. You do, <laughs> you do it live. I, I realised just how naked I looked. I was in this <laughs> leotard with these American tan tights that went up, you look great. up to my hips. Yes. Thank you, James. 
um, it was it was good actually. I got wolf whistle by a white a white van driver the day after. He went, "Oi, mate, nice legs." <laughs> I went, "Sorry, mate. no, seriously, nice legs." Oh, thank you. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I was worried what he would what he would think, and then he you know he left me this voicemail saying, uh, uh, "I saw you being interviewed." Being worried about you know what I think of you looking yeah, like that that's right. cobbler's boy. I thought you looked. I thought you looked fantastic. I couldn't stop laughing. Proud how, of you, mate. How would his life have been better if he'd learnt some of the lessons that you've learnt? If if he'd been able to talk about his family, are you sure that it would have been? Because the thing about the stiff upper lip, which is mm. a synonym for all the stuff you've described in a way, isn't yeah. it? The, the idea that you don't talk about it. Yeah. Some people would be terrified of not having a stiff upper lip which yeah. is kind of your point but reading about your dad I, I, I kind of wonder who he would have been if he'd been emotionally literate it's uh, it, we'll never know really will we I mean par partly it's a generational thing yes. I mean look this, uh, I, I'm not saying that wouldn't it be wonderful if men were bursting into tears every five minutes that would obviously be horrible and there's something to be said for stoicism and grace under pressure and you know all that stuff that you find in Kipling's if mm. Um, I just challenge the idea that this is an exclusively male trait because I've seen women do it all my life. And as, as far as physical courage goes, you know, you don't watch someone give birth twice and then uh, you, you very quickly, you know, let go of the idea that physical bravery is a, is a male thing either or exclusively so. Um, but, but, but maybe it's, a, you know, something of, of his generation comes into it, of course, because that those guys, the baby boomers, are almost all the sons and daughters of soldiers gotcha. and you know those people who fought in the war they came home they'd seen and done some extraordinary and one would imagine very traumatizing things and they they didn't get any support at they, all they screwed down the lid they, they absolutely had to and yes. i think you know i would say you know this will sound a bit glib having of course never been in their services but you know that you know empathy and emotional literacy is the last thing a soldier needs you know you, you can't be thinking about you know what it's going to do to the family of this person that you that you're required to shoot mm. so you know it's a heck of a thing to have to do and of course they need a certain amount of you know keeping it together but then when they come home they need a lot of support and that generation of course didn't get it because we you know because it was a different time and we knew less about this stuff um, but I think it, there's a there's a possibility that they pass that on to their children uh, where in peacetime it is less useful so I mean of course there are times when you've got to keep it together and you know if somebody you know if your best friend says I've got cancer you're not gonna you don't get to cry on them they get to cry on you. You have to be the wall that that wave breaks on. So, you know, there is a time to be strong for other people, of course. But then you should be able to talk to someone else about it. And, you know, it's, it's the idea that it shouldn't be, you know, shrugging off, ignoring it, pretending it's not happening, turning it off like a light switch, as they say in the Book of Mormon. It should be mm. the exception rather than the default. Do you, do you think that, that's why certain men do burst into tears and tell you how much they love you when they're pissed, but never any other time? Because some, yeah, somehow I saw a, I saw an advert for um, Sky Premiership, and uh, it was it was the tagline was something like 
feel it, or it was something like feel everything. And it's like, and it's funny that, that football is one of those times when when it's okay for men to get together and sing with joy yes. and weep in each other's arms, and um, and that is the, the that's the sort of outlet. And you know, fair enough. I'm not I'm not down on football just because I was no good at it. Just, <laughs> you're, but you're getting better now. It's how the book ends with you playing in the garden be, with your daughter, playing, yeah, yeah with, who are six and eight, and they're just about to overtake me. <laughs> the um the the, the kind of Career is, I'm glad you've used the word lucky because it, it, a lot of people don't. And, and mm. even if it's not true, even if your talent is such that you would have you would have shone in any firmament, it, just to acknowledge that there's a degree of luck in this kind of thing keeps you, keeps you rooted, doesn't it? It keeps you Absolutely. safe. What, what, what would have happened if you'd never met David Mitchell? If I'd never met David Mitchell, uh, I suppose I would have tried to do sketches with the other people that mm. I met um, there. They were all, there were a lot of funny people there, but they... The thing about David is, you know, when I first saw him, I was a year ahead and I went to see him. I was second year, he was the first year and I, he, he was doing a show with his mates and the lights came up and I'd seen funny student performers before, but there was something about David. There was this uh, combination of uh, ease and focus, which uh, he looked like he lived there which conceitedly I thought reminded me of me <laughs> um, and I was I was in quite a competitive mood at the time and I thought what are we going to do about this yeah. problem uh, I'm, do I, am I going to destroy him because <laughs> <Or laughs> I was on the Footlights Committee I was in you know I was in you a had position power. I had a little tiny bit of uh, crazy pretending to be grown up student power um, but no I asked him to do a show uh, I sort of say in the book you know it was I had a conversation in my head like the uh, a bit in uh, The Empire Strikes Back sorry to bore anyone who doesn't like Star Wars but there's you know the, the Emperor goes there is a disturbance in the funny we have a new enemy David Mitchell he's he's just a boy he could destroy us if he could be turned he could be a powerful ally so I did turn him and uh, made him a powerful ally yes how? Uh, I asked uh, if he'd like to do a, a two man show the following year when we were in Edinburgh in 1993 uh, and he said yes I mean he was being asked out on a big comedy gig by next year's Footlights Vice President so sure. he wasn't allowed to non negotiable no. <laughs> yeah. are you still the senior partner no but when did uh, that, that stop that evaporated months later only uh, months when he realised I couldn't type so is that how it worked when you were writing stuff you'd be marching he, up and he down he typed I paced yeah. and, and while you, while yeah, you did well it. I didn't do much pacing in his bedroom where we did most of our work because that was he had a computer next to his single bed in the tiny flat where, where we lived and uh uh well where he lived yes. but where I stayed because I was going out with um, someone a, a flatmate um, which wasn't a good idea because we, we, I mean, we just—he was the first vertical person I said good night to and said good morning to, <laughs> and you know, we really got on each other's nerves. That was my fault. But, but the friendship—I mean, it wobbled a bit. Did it? It was. There was a time sort of when it all really kicked off for us, sort of two thousand six, seven. Uh, the sketch show started. Peep show was established. Uh, we did a national tour. We did the Apple ads. We did um, uh, uh, we did various that we did a book together. We did we did loads of stuff. Uh, we did magicians and, and it was all packed into a sort of twenty four months. And we would see each other literally every day. And for two people who are not in love, yes. that is a lot of time to spend with each other. So we, we never had the row. Uh, Did you have we, the kind of? We yeah. never, we never will have the row. Right. Uh, yes, touchy silences. We could do uh, passive aggressive silences with that lethal English courtesy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a sight to behold. What 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 reeled it back in? What rescued it? Um, Space mutual 
necessity. I, I, I mean, to get separately, we're both bone idle. Right. So it, it, it was great that we found each other, really, because we were sort of each other's boss. And, you know, we had to arrange, when am I going to turn up at this place to write some sketches? You know, we would, when we were writing sketches, we would go to the pub together. We would have, uh, in the evening, we'd uh, start talking and wait for a funny idea to creep in from the edges of sight. We'd have a couple of notebooks out. We'd just talk, really, and I, I kind of miss those conversations. We'd just talk about what was annoying us about politics or about television or about our, the weird things that our friends did and see if there was an idea there. And we'd you know, end the evening merrily with five or six ideas and then write them up sober, in the morning and that's well, chemistry not in the morning in the afternoon sure that's chemistry that's finding the same things funny yes that's that's what that's what really made the difference and then there's there's a sort of stage thing going. there's a live I mean a performance thing going on that we that we have this sort of complicity that we I sort of know what he's doing without looking at him and, and vice versa and you know the, the joint Mitchell and Webb ego was always bigger than its competing parts and okay. that's why you know as long as we thought we were doing better stuff than the bouche or if we were keeping little Britain honest <laughs> we were we were happy I love that idea that's because I mean there's room for all of them but you want to be yeah no we were when you I mean I, I don't feel like that at all anymore but, but, but you need when, you're, when you're starting out you need a bit of self-confidence and a bit of uh, validation yeah I think so yeah you, you, you yeah and we, we sort of validated each other so that was uh, crucial really what I would find hard to do is pinpoint in in the because it's 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 up until success really the book isn't it it's up until yeah, marriage I mean, and and fame I hate memoirs that don't include any famous people but I've I've more or less written that I mean there are t there are two showbiz anecdotes uh, and they're good ones but mainly it's uh, yeah childhood and teenage stuff and then a bit of came yeah and then it and then it fi it finishes at the end of Cambridge and then it th there's a massive fast forward to me as a as an adult yeah which is I mean it's an interesting gap and but where on that graph if you were plotting it where, where, where do you like yourself <laughs> uh, I think I I mean it's a very difficult thing to say out loud I think I do like myself I think I you know I, you haven't I, always have you or uh, have? well yeah I think there have been times when I've been aware that I haven't been behaving well definitely certainly as a as a student uh there was, you know, after waiting a colossally long time to lose my virginity, which, uh, which, you know, in the end I had to do it for the sake of my eyesight. That's a Billy Connolly joke. Um, but uh, when I, by the time I got to university, there was a, there was a certain amount of promiscuity going on, and I didn't always. I made promises that I didn't keep, uh, and so that, you know, I was aware that I was behaving badly there. I was also aware that, you know, because I was a bit of a I was slightly starry and grand in Footlights, and by my third year, I was under the impression that I was I was behaving like an actor as if I was in The Apprentice, and I had I hadn't noticed that acting was a team sport because I didn't like teams or sport. Okay. So you know, I had this up yours attitude that uh, I was the best; everyone had to keep up, and I was good, but I didn't mind telling everyone that I was good, which is deeply 
you know, obnoxious. And um, it's so worse, I, isn't it, when you are good? It's, it's, if you're rubbish yeah, and you tell everyone you're great, that's worse, forgivable because you're people, ridiculous. It's worse when people have to agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, but that's but conceit. I, but that's I, but I, yeah, it was, and insecurity as well, and and just and just this feeling that you know I used that my you know what I fondly thought of as my talent. I'm not sure if I really believe in that word actually, but mm. but, but but that capacity to do the thing. To practice the thing that doesn't feel like work so often that it that you get good at it, because you have this kind of uh, you have this um, I can't think of the word, but you're 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 sort of made for it in the first place. So getting you know practicing doesn't feel like practicing. Uh, yeah. I had that and I wore it as a suit of as a suit of armor, and um, I was very upset when pe if people didn't notice how very shiny my armor was. But you know, I sort of grew out of that and, and realized that you know it is a collaboration, and you do your best work when you collaborate with people instead of trying to compete with them. And only arseholes would rather compete, given the choice. Indefinitely, and some people in, never in any you business, see that in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's not something that you yeah, leave absolutely. behind as childish things, is it? You see people who are obsessed with getting one over still yeah. now. And it's crazy because you you know I I think of you know when I think of the word masculinity yes um I uh, and what it means it's I can't you know I I, I avoid the word to the phrase toxic masculinity in the book because a it's a bit of a fuck off to blokes and I wanted men to read the book as much as women and they are doing yes but also because it, it kind of implies there's a good version of masculinity and I I'm not down on men I think men just like women are flawed humans who are capable of being magnificent as well as behaving disgracefully but but masculinity I mean what is it I mean it, it just conjures these stereotypes from the last century about leather driving gloves and body odor and medallions and and when I think of the men in my personal life my friends that I admire and what I like about them we're talking about the gentle dads and the reliable partners and the blokes that you catch in random acts of kindness and these to me are the grown-ups the people who've who've grown out of gender um, and who aren't who aren't having to perform maleness? It's the opposite of what you see on The Apprentice. Yes. What you, what you get on The Apprentice is this, you know, the need to dominate other people, the Weasley interest in hierarchy, the stupid idea that inflexibility is a virtue. You know, all that stuff. You call um, it moronic in the book. Don't you? I do, yeah. And it's no coincidence that you know that show has given us both Katie Hopkins and Donald Trump. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> You mentioned insecurity and approval. What's odd? I think all people, and, and your book means we re review all of our relationships, especially, I think, men reading it. We're almost identical ages. I lost my dad at a similar time. I'm sorry. But I followed my dad into the same profession, so I got his approval. Mm -hmm. I got his validation. I wish he'd hung around for a little bit longer to uh, to see, you know, to see us doing this. It would yeah, be a yeah. real highlight for him. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you, you were never going to get that kind of validation from home, were you? You were never. I mean, what, what? I suppose I'm asking what you were measuring yourself against. I remember Dad saying. All I really want, boy, is to put you in a box saying, doing all right. And I think that's the ambition of all parents. And it's a perfectly noble one. And uh, so he didn't really get it about. I mean, it was hard because you, it, it's a, it's a, when, before you have any measure of success as a comedy actor and writer, it's a slightly complicated thing to explain to people <laughs> what, is what, it you what, do? what the hell it is you're doing. <laughs> so you, so they get used to the idea of Edinburgh. Oh, you're doing Edinburgh, right? August, Robert goes to Edinburgh and yeah. tries to be famous. 
um, the rest of the year. What, what is it you're working on at the moment, boy? <laughs> well, we've got this first look deal with the BBC, so what? we have to write. Sorry, <clears throat> what it is is you you write five scripts and they they're not going to make any of them, but um, they say they might, and you um, I get paid. Okay, yeah. so it's good now. I get paid. Oh, well done, boy. You get paid. Good. How do you afford the rent then? What? Well, you know, so, so the, the when, stuff when, you make that doesn't get shown. The pilots that yeah, you have pilots. To, yeah, they so all made got, this thing that they all no, got you used can't to, watch it. Yeah, they had to get they had to get very used to the concept. <laughs> of pilots uh, not just pilots that don't get written but, but <laughs> treatments for pilots yeah. you know and trying to describe this to your grandparents and your and your great auntie Trudy as well as dad um, so the colossal relief apart from anything else of Peep Show coming along so then I could just say I'm making another series of Peep Show and they'd say good and um, but sorry your question is what was I measuring myself against um, I've, I've no idea I, th I think David and I had a had a view of what we'd like to do. We want. We knew that we wanted to do a sketch show, ideally on BBC Two. And what came along first was a sitcom on Channel Four. Yeah. Uh, and we really weren't grumbling. It's uh, late twenties. And then eventually we got both. My very late twenties. Yeah. So had you sort of? I know you were doing all right, and at risk of sounding like your auntie Trudy, <laughs> <laughs> and insisting on more detail. Were you beginning to panic at all? About we, the fame side of it, we, rather than the security. It's not quite panic, but there was a subtle resignation setting in that we were subsisting as comedy writers right. um, from about 97 onwards. So that's two years after I left university. We started to earn a living as uh, writing for the links on the Jack Doherty show on mm. Channel 5, writing sketches for Armstrong and Miller. There was an access show called uh, Comedy Nation where you mm. literally brought along your own superhero costume if you wanted to be a superhero. <laughs> Um, and so we were doing that and we were we were working as writers but we were not working as actors and, and actors you know performing this stuff is where we wanted to go so we thought okay right well it might turn out that we are okay paid um, comedy writers for the rest of our lives and well that will be something I mean that will be something because we like jokes but it it would be a great shame if we don't get to perform it very often in front of many people. So um, we were hugely relieved. I mean, Peep Show was the was the break, and it came yes, along in sure. in two thousand and. I mean, there was a big gap between filming it and it going out, but we made the f the first half of the pilot. Channel Four bravely commissioned the first twelve and a half minutes of the pilot <laughs> in two thousand and one, and then eventually we did the second half six months later. Uh, I had to get a haircut, and then, um, and then the commissioner series, and then that went out in two thousand three. Did, did, did you and David talk about that side of it? That kind of it'll be all right if this is all we carry on doing. Yeah, but we we were really sort of there to cheer each other up about it, and there was always an illusion, uh, probably not quite an illusion actually, but there was always a feeling of progress. We could yes. always say, okay, this time last year we had a slightly worse slot in Edinburgh. You know, and this time last year we were doing this, and what we did last week is certainly better than that, don't you think? Yes, I do. And so we were always trying to keep each other's morale up. Um, so again, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you, it's so much harder to do it on your own. But the best thing about it is that you were in exactly the same boat. So that that gene that kicked in, the competitive gene that kicked in when you saw him on stage. If you'd had side project, I don't mean you, you weren't completely in each other's pocket, but. And I want you to answer this honestly. How, how would you have felt if he'd got an offer that didn't involve you? Oh, dreadful. That, that was huge. Oh, appalling. Would he have done it? 
good one. Would you if I, it was the other it, way around? What well, if it was like a like a like a big acting? Well, it was job. a bit like when Rick Astley was discovered by <laughs> Pete Waterman, and he was told you'll have to lose the band. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it sort of did happen in that I was uh, I was taken on by an agent um, who, and she didn't take David. Right. Uh, and then later on, uh, she saw me and him do a show together because she'd seen us in a play where I was where I had the lead, um, but David was, was playing a couple of other characters. And then a few months later, she saw us in uh, doing our own uh, two man show, and she realised obviously. You, let's have David as well. She worked for another agent who didn't like either of us, but anyway. But there was that separation and there was a there was a pilot of a sketch show called Bruiser, which I got, which they didn't want David, but David was brought in as a writer and eventually he inveigled his way into it. Like Leroy and Fame. Exactly, exactly. Just David Mitchell, just like Leroy and Fame. That's peas in a pod. <laughs> but I, I, I mention it, and it's interesting that because you, you, I mean, these were month-long windows and and failed projects mm. that he did end up getting involved with. I, mm. I, I mean, treat by that 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 little period at the end of your twenties where if you didn't have each other, even though things were going well, because you were in exactly the same boat, you could just keep each other keep each other going. Quite a lot of double acts, and mm. I don't know that you think of yourself as a double act necessarily. Yeah, yeah quite a lot of double acts. Seem to thrive on 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 the sort of latent tensions and, and rivalries and jealousies. You, mm. you you two now and and we well now it's very different because we hardly uh, you know I I did back with him this summer and that was the first time we worked together since the final series of Peach Gosh, Show, which yes, was of course uh, and yet in good, the public consciousness you're still a good couple of years yeah. ago. So so you know we've had a chance to miss each other and and also we've become kind of closer in a way because you know we we were each other's best man at each other's wedding and uh you know he and victoria uh, came to my dad's funeral and that, you know stuff like that uh and the fact that you know you really have to go out of your way to see people now because you know we all used to live you know there was a whole bunch of friends living in swiss cottage and then kilburn and they've all sort of split off into different directions as they start their own families and um so you have to you know, make an effort to see your friends now in a way that they used to be just them. You'd yeah. walk into the local pub and you'd see someone. Uh, and of course, it's not like that now. So, you know, having to make an effort sort of, it, it makes it more, it feel, feel more valuable. Yeah. And it coincides with your, which is part part of the sort of emotional literacy sections of the book, your, your conviction that talking to friends and having a, you mentioned that your dada, which is your mum's dad, right? Yeah. We, we had some great holidays, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. So he said that was because one of the do one enough. Of, one of the last things that he that I heard him say was um, he was ninety four, and he said, uh, "At least we had some good holidays, mate." And I turned back and I said, "Yeah, we had some great holidays, but at least." I mean, I just think he felt that deficit, and I saw it three times over. I saw it with my dad and my stepdad Derek as well. That you know they didn't end their lives saying, "I wish I'd seen less of my children." I wish I dominated more men. I wish I'd shrugged and walked away more often when I upset the woman who loves me. Mm. You know, they all express this lurking regret that there hadn't been enough of the good stuff, friendship and love and understanding and family. And I think there are boys, you know, 
right now with stabilizers on their bicycles going around and they're heading in exactly that direction and I would save them the trouble and because they're, they're going to cause trouble to women as well and they're using the word gay as a pejorative to describe all of the course, things that you've nothing, just described nothing's changed nothing's changed in that respect I, I really I mean it's difficult to measure but it, it really doesn't feel like that situation has improved I remember you know I was saying that I found the rules for being a boy a tight fit when I was let's say seven but two of the things I did understand and I called them in the book the sovereign importance of early homophobia yes. and the paramount objective of despising girls because if there's one thing worse than being a girl it's being a gay and only gays play with girls and that much was clear um, and I think it's it would be surprising would it not if all of that stuff that you're hearing when you're young when your brain is still developing if that doesn't leave a mark if that if you if you're not left with some kind of lurking closet bigotry mm. in the book I call it the farage in the garage and you know I think you know it's always worth keeping an eye on that if you re if your aim if you're serious about seeing women if a man is serious about seeing women as fully human and fully equal not human like some kind of charming and mysterious dolphin yes. human like a human <laughs> you know put it this way if I have to human like a man in order to get that idea through and it's you know the, sometimes we just don't we don't see them the way that even now yeah yeah. I think even you know I speak for myself we're a couple of disgusting libtard feminazi cucks, uh, cucks aren't we so, but I think even liberals um, reckon they've got the job done because you know you know I speak for myself no, sure. there was a time when uh, you know I, I thought there's no way that I can be behaving like a like a sexist and complacent husband because I write anti-sexist comedy oh, sketches yeah, because I vote Labour because I've read uh, Man Made Language by Dale Spender so I've got this sorted I am the leading anti-dad uh, I've got all the antibodies uh, it's going to be fine and then of course you know it turns out I am just this bloke who expects if, things to miraculously yeah, appear yeah, in drawers exactly. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I say in the book, the personal is the political. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can't put a wash on and then expect a medal. And, you, you know, all that work, the unpaid, <laughs> unthanked domestic work that, that has to get done in the house, somebody's got to do it. And it, it really does come as a, as a surprise to some blokes that, um, that, it, that, it, that it doesn't happen by accident no and, and it's it's a generational I mean it's, it's going to take it is and you know because I saw my mum do everything same and my dad yes. do nothing yes um, inside the house sure so uh, so it's you know it's but but as I say in the book you know it's 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 a it's the adoption of a new habit it's not the evolution of gills and anyone who's given up smoking can testify that that a habit that felt like it was impossible to break you know once you've done it for a couple of weeks you look back and you go why did i let that hold me back for so long you know you form new habits you you overwrite uh new habits onto old ones but well, i still want a medal I, st I still want every a medal time. as well. Every I still time. want a medal. And I'm still very bad at putting things away in the right place. But I've been, I've been um, assured that getting it slightly wrong is better than refusing the job in the sure. first place. And, and not seeing stuff as well. I mean, literally walking past stuff and not noticing it. In, yeah. And then discovering later that that yeah. was six feet high. <laughs> yeah. I would like to stress. <laughs> I'd like to stress that this is a work in progress. And, it, uh, it all is, isn't yeah. it? It all is a work in progress. Yeah. And maybe that's the big difference. And that people like Paul, your dad... Mm never really dedicated any energy at all to trying to be different he just wasn't expected to I mean he he went with the flow and as far as he was concerned it was a perfectly good you know he was gonna he hurt himself with how much he drank and he smoked and he hurt himself by behaving in such a way that his wife left him um, but at the time he was doing it you know it was just what he and his peers 
did. And that was, you know, you work hard, you come home, you're a bit impatient with your wife and family. Mm. You, you know, you, you go to the pub and um, that was his life. And he, you know, I'm not blaming him for not, no, having, the, not having the imagination to step outside of the box because it, sure. it looked like a perfectly normal box. It was, it was what everyone did. Because very much creature of his age, creature of his environment. Absolutely. Caged by it almost in, yeah. in, in some senses. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you cry when he died? Yes, I did, yeah. Did you ever see him cry when he was alive? Uh, nearly. When? He, it's in the book. It's, um, he... I know it's in the book, but there's oh, a lot sorry. of people listening. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, Do not look at the old man behind the curtains. It's in the, it's in the book, James. Yeah. Why I told we just, you at the beginning why, that why this don't is... We just, why don't we just read the book silently? Come full and, and let everyone try and guess what's in it. Uh, yes, uh, there's a very sad uh, aspect to mum and dad's life um, which was that uh, my oldest brother Martin uh, died of meningitis when he was six uh, and I was born ten months later and uh, it, it's always seemed very likely to me in fact I happen to know because my mum my told me that I'm I'm basically here because somebody else died and so I've always had a, uh, a I, I always think I know a thing or two about luck <laughs> yes. Um, but yes there was a there was a moment where uh, we were talking about oh we were talking about his reputation sort of back in the day in the 70s this is after you met the bloke in the pub that yeah, described I met him as a hero and a legend that's right yeah and the, the bloke had been going oh yeah uh, you know Paul Webb legend for uh, you know shagging, shagging and, and drinking and fighting and I reported this conversation to him after I'd had a few drinks myself yeah. uh, slightly tactlessly but he was unfaithful to my mum and I you know and I was angry with him about that she just died and uh, and he said, you know, we had some we had some good times. Um, so he said we had some tough times, but we had some good times too, which I believe. But the but the tough times uh, that wasn't a euphemism. He was talking about a particular person, and uh, you know, I saw it, he nearly cried there, but he didn't. And you nearly um, hit him just before that. Moment. Just before that, I nearly hit him. Yeah, before I, you know, I say it in the book. I'm telling the story slightly in a funny order, but um, yeah, I was so angry with him. Um, You're but still I, angry with him. I think I probably always will be a bit angry with him. Yeah, uh, when I think about it, it's funny because you, you know, the cliche is that when you become a parent yourself, you forgive your own parents for their flaws. But in some ways, it hasn't quite worked like no. that. In, in uh, when I now that I have Esme and Dory, and I think about hitting them or I think about ignoring them, or I think about discouraging them, or I think about, you know, some of the stuff that happened and the way he treated my, he didn't hit my mother to my knowledge, but but the disrespectful way that he, they talked to each other and they yelled at each other. I, I, I just get angry all over again. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I kind of balance it with, with the good things that I, that I like about him, but I can't make that many excuses for him. Um, I'm still, yeah, I'm still angry with him. Yeah. There's um, there's this, a line in Enemies of Promise by Cyril Connolly where he talks about people that went to public school being sort of almost held hostage by the intensity of the experiences that they had. Mm. And oddly, I thought of that while reading your book about about growing up in essentially in, in the opposite end of the spectrum to to Eton, which mm. is where Cyril Connolly went, and as if you you have in a, in a way your adolescence has extended because of your relationship with your dad and that's why you've put so much effort into growing up perhaps yes i think that's prob there's probably something in that in that um uh, there was this uh 
huge act of rebellion um, in that, you know, what's the thing that that would most irritate dad? Uh, that was always yeah. the sort of, that was always the sort of, you know, whatever's the opposite of him, that's what I'll do. Um, and I, I mean, I, mean, I, you know, you can overstate that, but I, that was sort of always at the back of my mind in that, you know, he was perfectly, he was delighted that I wanted to go to Cambridge University. Of course he was. Um, but there again, uh, but going into comedy, going into show business, you know, I sort of say at the end of the book, um, you know, families, uh, villages, village life is, is quite good for those accommodations we have to make with each other. You know, you can't have these kind of blanket generalizations mm. about whole groups of people when you notice that you live next door to one and you have to rub up against them. And I sort of say that his view of, you know, uh, lefty, lovey, champagne socialists, uh, uh, liberals with a uh, with a slightly gay past, uh, had to <laughs> had to take a step back when he noticed that he had one for a son. And equally, my view of slightly racist, deeply sexist, uh, white working class, non college educated uh, baby boomers, Tories had to had to accommodate the fact that I had one for a dad. And and you you know, and we we did sort of we did sort of uh compromise there and sort of manage but but again it's you know it's the ex that's the thing about intolerance it's always the exception that proves the rule you know dad well, don't mean you yeah exactly not you i mean family is family yeah and some of my again, best friend and dad and dad would talk about you know phil and malk or whatever they were called the, the gay couple that ran the chip shop down the road <laughs> bloody good fish and chips i mean you've got to say you've got to say it that's the thing about your queers they've always got something special they're always they've always got something extra haven't they but he's saying more isn't he when he does that is it he is saying a lot more he's sort of saying well well blow me down it turns out that they're not that freakish and different yeah and, yeah and odd yes well. no, it's all, it always comes as a surprise um your mum losing her at such a young age that that will be something most people reading the book can't relate to that because it mm. is 17 is a it's an almost un, it's impossible to contemplate could have been what? worse. I mean, I, you know, I, How do you I mean, well, I, I've got a friend who lost his dad when he was eight. Isn't yeah. eight, eight, eight's worse than seventeen, isn't it? I mean, I don't I know, but it, you know, it's not a competition. But it, but yes, it, it felt. It, what felt um, sort of particularly cruel about it was that we were just beginning to establish a sort of grown-up relationship. Yes, I was just beginning to talk to her as a as a semi-adult, so that was uh, that was wicked, really. Um, but you know what are you going to do? And you know, I, I didn't. Well, hang on. You know, I, I mean, isn't that a little bit the opposite of the advice that I've taken away from from your book? What what, what are you going to do? I'm interested in what you did do. It's a, it's a well. What I did do was not talk about it for three years. Exactly. Uh, and uh, when I got to, I was lucky that because I was at university at that point and Cambridge to do a free or certainly did a free counselling service. I mean, there's quite a long waiting list, but sure. but it's there, and. It wasn't that I suddenly noticed that I that I was in this terrible denial, terrible grief. It was it was this smaller, trivial thing that was this trigger. Frankly, to be honest, it was you know uh, I had this sort of casual sexual relationship going on with this girl, and I was colossally besotted and in love with. I thought this boy, and then they went out with each other, and um, <laughs> it's the it's the perils of uh, having a slightly fluid sexuality, which yes. I did at the time, um, uh, and I sort of couldn't eat for. A fortnight, and I thought, hang on, it can't just be because of these guys. There must be something else going on. 
and eventually I, you know, I took myself along to to the counselling service and I describe in the book the sort of yeah. initial assessment where I'm talking about these two guys and you know the, the chief of the counselling service looks frankly bored I mean these things I think are a lot more common than one would imagine uh, and then he said thank you for that now please uh, tell me about your family and, and so I told him about mum and then living with dad and then you know what it was like when mum and dad were married and mum dying and his pencil flew into action and um, at the end of it he said you know, I think there's been an unusual amount of separation in your life and you use that as a model for current adversity and it makes things feel worse than they really are and I think you have a problem and I think we can help. And to hear a proper professional grown-up say that just made all the difference. And all it is is, you know, you, you go along uh, for an hour a week and you talk and you're under no pressure to start crying about everything there again you don't have to be cheerful either the, your counselor you, you know you can like him but he's not your friend and he's not your granny and he's not your you know you're not wasting his time he has literally nothing better to do this is his job and so you can do that without feeling uh, guilty and you can go through the week thinking well, this is a particularly unpleasant experience in my head but at least I can tell Michael about it on Thursday and it makes it makes all the difference. I mean, I was having suicidal thoughts. I mean, you know, it, it got fairly bad. Um, so I was, it was a good thing that I went there and I would recommend it to anyone. I mean, it's it's not easy to get hold of in Britain. It's getting harder. Free counselling. It is. Um, but uh, if it's possible, then 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 grab it with both hands because it, it made a big difference to me. I remember Michael, my counsellor saying, you know, I, because I did feel guilty and I did feel that, you know, that, that I felt self-indulgent mm. for talking about my, you know, difficult feelings. And, you know, it's one of the worst accusations a man can make against himself. Or, you know, you should shrug this off. You know, you're being self-indulgent. Pull your socks up. Pull your socks up, exactly. Worst things happen to people, yeah. other people all the time. And I mentioned this. Michael said, look, it's like you're in a doctor's surgery and you've got a broken arm. And the person next to you has got two broken arms. And the person next to them has got two broken arms and a broken leg. And yes, they are worse off than you but the point is you've got a broken arm and it hurts and you're here and they're not here so let's hear about your broken arm and that I, I think was a useful thing to hear of course there's always someone worse off but uh, if you're literally thinking about killing yourself or, or, and hopefully before it gets anywhere near that then yes. you, you should you should talk to someone do you still have therapy uh, I did for a while to help me stop smoking because it, okay. it was it was getting I tried everything else and eventually I thought there must be just something else going on here and also there was you know the uh, my marriage with Abby is uh, is good and it's solid but but there was a bit of there was we were going through a, a, a tricky patch and um, and I wanted to talk to someone and you know I'm in a very fortunate position now that I can I can afford to see someone privately so I'm not taking up other people's other people's counsellors <laughs> um, but, um, but that was only for a few weeks of course um, almost done because you mentioned your wife at the end yes if, 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 possibly if I had one criticism of the book mm -hmm. do we because in the interview here you haven't done this but you don't put much responsibility at the foot of women when things go wrong. You don't idolise them or, or, or mythologise them, but I mean, sometimes in a relationship, it, it could be their fault things have gone bad. Yeah, There's a slight absolutely. sense it's always the bloke's fault. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm being <clears throat> no, unfair. I think, <clears throat> no, I think that's probably fair enough. I, I think that's probably that could 
well be just straightforward cowardice on my part and, the, and the, I'm wanting an easy life. <laughs> How am I going to criticise Abby in a book that may sell... No, well, you can't that, do that. That, no. that may sell Especially, thousands no, and thousands. No, you put a poem at the end of it as well. She does, yeah, it? she does get that. Uh, it's uh, a lovely poem. One of her, one of her poems. Um, yes, of course, uh, she can be a real pain in the arse. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I... You know, I didn't mean her specifically. I just meant no, the, I the idea. No, I do. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, you know, women are as flawed as... Uh, as blokes, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm. There are particular things that are, I think, exclusive to men that we tend right. to struggle with. That, that you know, because I'm talking from my own experience about my own life and what I've been up to. That, that of course, it, it that that's where the focus is. But no, I it it would be as you say. I don't put women on a pedestal no. because that's quite often a neat way to, yeah. you know, say this woman is excellent and therefore you all know you can are. write off all the others as shit. Yes. Um, so I I try to avoid that, and I certainly don't think that women are nicer than men because again that's a that's that's a convenient way of making them look after men, mm. saying so, you know Nurture. oh but you're so you're so nurturing and caring and marvelous and that's a, and we, we're desperately trying to find scientific studies that that prove that female brains are nicer than male brains and that's why you should never have to wash socks again and that's why you should change this nappy <laughs> um, finally what's next I mean because we talked about the postcard but it wasn't a postcard yeah. Hollywood yeah you, you, you're going to modestly shrug but it, it, it's it, one never knows be, do you have any ambitions left professionally can't be bothered to get my hair and teeth fixed would so, you have to so I suppose so you well, would I think Hollywood yeah. these days don't you yeah. anyway um, no well the next thing is it was a two book deal and there's an idea for a novel Novel, uh, yeah. which scares the hell out of me because this time I've got to make up a whole story. Have you started? Uh, I've made a very good first 93 words start. Well start uh, that's it. That's the, you're over the worst. I've got a great <laughs> idea for a start. It's just the middle and the end uh, I need to think about now. And, and, and that, I mean, was that an ambition? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I when was, you started reading voraciously, I, I hesitate to use a cliche, but yeah. we're, we're halfway yeah. in. So it set you free. It, it made you who you are it opened windows you didn't know existed oh yeah and you want to do that for other no, people no reading was a big deal and now I've always wanted to write novels it's it, but there again you know my ambition as an actor you know I'll never retire from acting because I you know I love it but but I found writing the book my word I like the hours yeah. and I like working at home and you know I, not, I like not having to leave London which I went to enormous trouble to move to and so now you have really, to go so it really annoys me yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and, and uh, I mean it's brilliant when you're in it when it's flying and it's singing but it's horrible getting to that point isn't it or, or are you one of the people that's blessed with the writing uh, yes yes no it is horrible now a lot of it well I mean it, it sort of depends a lot of the time it's it's an in, it's an enjoyable kind of difficult yes. I mean, when you when you're in a section and you sort of have an idea where this chapter's going and what where you want to get to then every sentence is this enjoyable challenge and you know all the skills to the extent that I have them that I learned as a sketch writer with David are quite Tra surprisingly transferable because you know you learn something about economy you learn something about setting things up quickly with a couple of strokes of the brush if you like and of course dialogue is my comfort zone I'm never happier than when I can get characters talking um, which other writers find almost impossible to do so yeah no, it, I that. mean it's no it's good fun and I, I've enjoyed giving everyone different voices there's nothing yeah. I hate more than novels where started with where the all, guys didn't it it started Did with all the, 15 the, of them the have guy their own guys, little 12 like the apostles guy vice, yeah, yeah the guy vice, my, was, my imaginary so. friends yeah. um, thank you thank you James that, that was lovely hooray uh, and that concludes the third episode of Unfiltered. Robert's, Robert's gone now. And I'll mention this because the details are often quite interesting. He turned up on his own with a suitcase. He's been on his book tour 
um, uh, up and down the country. And I would say his status, his fame is such at this point in his career, where I wouldn't have been that shocked if he turned up with two publicists and a show. It's, uh, it, I don't know, possibly an insight into him. I, I found him fascinating. Uh, yeah, he was uh, so unassuming. Yes. Like, you know, uh, as you say, he's like such a famous guy, but turns out with just himself um, and kind of adds to that, you know, the thing about the comedians are the, the people that make us laugh are the ones that also have the deepest, darkest holes inside it's, themselves. It's, it's very true. I should have said Richard is, is the producer of Unfiltered and just joining me for a bit of a, bit of a postscript on <laughs> this. He's a bit grand. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> print the legend, mate. Print the legend. And, and that curious thing for me, because we talked about the show-off gene with Russell Brand in episode one and he loved it. He, he texted me about it subsequently. Mm. He loves the idea of a show-off gene. Robert Webb didn't seem to have it. Yeah. And yet his entire career is essentially look at me being hilarious well it's funny when you read the book he grows up he's such a shy young yes. man he's so quiet and reserved and you know, you know I can relate to that and I imagine lots of people who listen to this to can um, but I don't know maybe it's, it's like a natural love for it because not everyone can have the look at me gene you know they've got to have the drive yeah. to get through the you know the fear there's got to be some fear behind him because it doesn't come naturally possibly. yeah a fear of failure I really liked him what's going to happen when we get one because we're three episodes in now what's going to happen when we get one I don't like uh, I'm going to get it in the next is that, is that what it's going to be well watch this space cheers Rich